Part One of Chapter Twenty Three of Persuasion. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Persuasion by Jane Austen. Chapter Twenty Three, Part One. One day only had passed since Anne's conversation with Mrs. Smith, but a keener interest had succeeded, and she was now so little touched by Mr. Elliot's conduct, except by its effects in one quarter that it became a matter of course the next morning still to defer her explanatory visit in River Street. She had promised to be with the Musgroves from breakfast to dinner. Her faith was plighted, and Mr. Elliot's character, like the Sultaness Scheherazade's head, must live another day. She could not keep her appointment punctually, however. The weather was unfavourable, and she had grieved over the rain on her friend's account, and felt it very much on her own, before she was able to attempt the walk. When she reached the White Hart, and made her way to the proper apartment, she found herself neither arriving quite in time, nor the first to arrive. The party before her were Mrs. Musgrove, talking to Mrs. Croft, and Captain Harville to Captain Wentworth, and she immediately heard that Mary and Henrietta, too impatient to wait, had gone out the moment it had cleared, but would be back again soon, and that the strictest injunctions had been left with Mrs. Musgrove to keep her there till they returned. She had only to submit sit down, be outwardly composed, and feel herself plunged at once in all the agitations which she had merely laid her account of tasting a little before the morning closed. There was no delay, no waste of time. She was deep in the happiness of such misery, or the misery of such happiness, instantly. Two minutes after her entering the room, Captain Wentworth said, "'We will write the letter we were talking of, Harville, now, if you will give me materials.' Materials were at hand, on a separate table. He went to it, and nearly turning his back to them all, was engrossed by writing. Mrs. Musgrove was giving Mrs. Croft the history of her eldest daughter's engagement, and just in that inconvenient tone of voice which was perfectly audible, while it pretended to be a whisper. Anne felt that she did not belong to the conversation, and yet, as Captain Harville seemed thoughtful, and not disposed to talk, she could not avoid hearing many undesirable particulars, such as how Mr. Musgrove and my brother Hayter had met again and again to talk it over, what my brother Hayter had said one day, and what Mr. Musgrove had proposed the next, and what had occurred to my sister Hayter, and what the young people had wished, and what I said at first I never could consent to, but was afterwards persuaded to think might do very well, and a great deal in the same style of open-hearted communication. Minutia, which, even with every advantage of taste and delicacy, which good Mrs. Musgrove could not give, could be properly interesting only to the principals. Mrs. Croft was attending with great good humour, and whenever she spoke at all, it was very sensibly. Anne hoped the gentlemen might each be too much self-occupied to hear. "'And so, ma'am, all these things considered,' said Mrs. Musgrove in her powerful whisper, Though we could have wished it different, yet altogether we did not think it fair to stand out any longer, for Charles Hayter was quite wild about it, and Henrietta was pretty near as bad, and so we thought they had better marry at once, and make the best of it, as many others have done before them. At any rate, said I, it will be better than a long engagement. That is precisely what I was going to observe, cried Mrs. Croft. I would rather have young people settle on a small income at once, and have to struggle with a few difficulties together, than be involved in a long engagement. I always think that no mutual—'Oh, dear Mrs. Croft!' cried Mrs. Musgrove, unable to let her finish her speech. "'There is nothing I so abominate for young people as a long engagement. It is what I always protested against for my children. It is all very well, I used to say, for young people to be engaged, if there is a certainty of their being able to marry in six months, or even in twelve but a long engagement—' "'Yes, dear ma'am,' said Mrs. Croft, "'or an uncertain engagement. 
an engagement which may be long. To begin without knowing that at such a time there will be the means of marrying, I hold to be very unsafe and unwise, and what I think all parents should prevent as far as they can." Anne found an unexpected interest here. She felt its application to herself, felt it in a nervous thrill all over her, and at the same moment that her eyes instinctively glanced towards the distant table, Captain Wentworth's pen ceased to move. His head was raised, pausing, listening, and he turned round the next instant to give a look, one quick, conscious look at her. The two ladies continued to talk, to re-urge the same admitted truths, and enforce them with such examples of the ill effect of a contrary practice as had fallen within their observation, but Anne heard nothing distinctly. It was only a buzz of words in her ear. Her mind was in confusion. Captain Harville, who had in truth been hearing none of it, now left his seat, and moved to a window. And Anne, seeming to watch him, though it was from thorough absence of mind, became gradually sensible that he was inviting her to join him where he stood. He looked at her with a smile, and a little motion of the head which expressed, "'Come to me. I have something to say.' And the unaffected, easy kindness of manner which denoted the feelings of an older acquaintance than he really was, strongly enforced the invitation. She roused herself, and went to him. The window at which he stood was at the other end of the room from where the two ladies were sitting, and though nearer to Captain Wentworth's table, not very near. As she joined him, Captain Harville's countenance reassumed the serious, thoughtful expression which seemed its natural character. "'Look here,' said he, unfolding a parcel in his hand, and displaying a small miniature painting. "'Do you know who that is?' "'Certainly. Captain Bennock.' "'Yes. And you may guess who it is for. But—' in a deep tone. It was not done for her. Miss Elliot, do you remember our walking together at Lyme and grieving for him? I little thought then—but no matter. This was drawn at the Cape. He met with a clever young German artist at the Cape, and in compliance with a promise to my poor sister, sat to him, and was bringing it home for her. And I have now the charge of getting it properly set for another. It was a commission to me. But who else was there to employ? I hope I can allow for him. I am not sorry, indeed, to make it over to another. He undertakes it," looking towards Captain Wentworth. He is writing about it now. And with a quivering lip he wound up the whole thing by adding, "'Poor Fanny! She would not have forgotten him so soon.' "'No,' replied Anne, in a low, feeling voice. "'That I can easily believe. It was not in her nature. She doted on him. It would not be the nature of any woman who truly loved.' Captain Harville smiled, as much as to say, "'Do you claim that for your sex?' And she answered the question, smiling also. "'Yes. We certainly do not forget you as soon as you forget us. It is, perhaps, our fate, rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You have always a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or other, to take you back into the world immediately and continual occupation and change, soon weaken impressions. Granting your assertion that the world does all this so soon for men, which, however, I do not think I shall grant, it does not apply to Bennick. He has not been forced upon any exertion. The peace turned him on shore at the very moment, and he has been living with us, in our little family circle, ever since." "'True,' said Anne, "'very true. I did not recollect. But what shall we say now, Captain Harville?' If the change be not from outward circumstances, it must be from within. It must be nature, man's nature, which has done the business for Captain Bennock. 
No, no, it is not man's nature. I will not allow it to be more man's nature than woman's to be inconstant and forget those they do love, or have loved. I believe the reverse. I believe in a true analogy between our bodily frames and our mental, and that as our bodies are the strongest, so are our feelings, capable of bearing most rough usage, and riding out the heaviest weather. Your feelings may be the strongest, replied Anne, but the same spirit of analogy will authorize me to assert that ours are the most tender. Man is more robust than woman, but he has not longer lived, which exactly explains my view of the nature of their attachments. Nay, it would be too hard upon you if it were otherwise. You have difficulties and privations and dangers enough to struggle with. You are always labouring and toiling, exposed to every risk and hardship. Your home, country, friends, all quitted, neither time nor health nor life to be called your own. It would be hard indeed, with a faltering voice, if woman's feelings were to be added to all this. We shall never agree upon this question, Captain Harvel was beginning to say, when a slight noise called their attention to Captain Wentworth's hitherto perfectly quiet division of the room. It was nothing more than that his pen had fallen down, but Anne was startled at finding him nearer than she had supposed, and half inclined to suspect that the pen had only fallen because he had been occupied by them, striving to catch sounds, which yet she did not think he could have caught. "'Have you finished your letter?' said Captain Harvel. "'Not quite. A few lines more. I shall have done in five minutes. There is no hurry on my side. I am only ready whenever you are. I am in very good anchorage here,' smiling at Anne, "'well supplied and want for nothing. No hurry for a signal at all.' "'Well, Miss Elliot,' lowering his voice, "'as I was saying, we shall never agree, I suppose, upon this point. No man and woman would, probably. But let me observe that all histories are against you, all stories, prose and verse. If I had such a memory as Benwick, I could bring you fifty quotations in a moment on my side the argument, and I do not think I ever opened a book in my life which had not something to say upon woman's inconstancy. Songs and proverbs all talk of woman's fickleness. But perhaps, you will say, these were all written by men. Perhaps I shall. Yes, yes, if you please, no reference to examples in books. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. But how shall we prove anything? We never shall. We never can expect to prove anything upon such a point. It is a difference of opinion which does not admit of proof. We each begin, probably, with a little bias towards our own sex, and upon that bias build every circumstance in favour of it which has occurred within our own circle. Many of which circumstances, perhaps those very cases which strike us the most, may be precisely such as cannot be brought forward without betraying a confidence, or in some respect saying what should not be said. "'Ah!' cried Captain Harville, in a tone of strong feeling. If I could but make you comprehend what a man suffers when he takes a last look at his wife and children, and watches the boat that he has sent them off in, as long as it is in sight, and then turns away and says, God knows whether we ever meet again. And then, if I could convey to you the glow of his soul when he does see them again, when coming back after a twelve months' absence, perhaps, and obliged to put into another port, he calculates how soon it be possible to get them there, pretending to deceive himself, and saying, they cannot be here till such a day, but all the while hoping for them twelve hours sooner, and seeing them arrive at last, as if heaven had given them wings, by many hours sooner still. If I could explain to you all this, and all that a man can bear and do, and glories to do, 
for the sake of these treasures of his existence. I speak, you know, only of such men as have hearts, pressing his own with emotion. Oh! cried Anne eagerly, I hope I do justice to all that is felt by you, and by those who resemble you. God forbid that I should undervalue the warm and faithful feelings of any of my fellow-creatures. I should deserve utter contempt if I dared to suppose that true attachment and constancy were known only by woman. No. I believe you capable of everything great and good in your married lives. I believe you equal to every important exertion, and to every domestic forbearance, so long as—if I may be allowed the expression—so long as you have an object. I mean, while the woman you love lives, and lives for you. All the privilege I claim for my own sex—it is not a very enviable one, you need not covet it—is that of loving longest, when existence or when hope is gone." She could not immediately have uttered another sentence. Her heart was too full, her breath too much oppressed. "'You are a good soul,' cried Captain Harville, putting his hand on her arm quite affectionately. "'There is no quarrelling with you.' and when I think of Benwick, my tongue is tied." Their attention was called toward the others. Mrs. Croft was taking leave. "'Here, Frederick, you and I part company, I believe,' said she. "'I am going home, and you have an engagement with your friend. To-night we may have the pleasure of all meeting again at your party,' turning to Anne. "'We had your sister's card yesterday, and I understood Frederick had a card too, though I did not see it. And you are disengaged, Frederick, are you not, as well as ourselves?' Captain Wentworth was folding up a letter in great haste, and either could not or would not answer fully. "'Yes,' said he, "'very true. Here we separate. But Harville and I shall soon be after you. That is, Harville, if you are ready, I am in half a minute. I know you will not be sorry to be off. I shall be at your service in half a minute.' Mrs. Croft left them, and Captain Wentworth, having sealed his letter with great rapidity, was indeed ready, and had even a hurried, agitated air, which showed impatience to be gone. Anne knew not how to understand it. She had the kindest good-morning, God bless you, from Captain Harville. But from him not a word nor a look. He had passed out of the room without a look. She had only time, however, to move closer to the table where he had been writing, when footsteps were heard returning. The door opened. It was himself. He begged their pardon, but he had forgotten his gloves. And instantly crossing the room to the writing-table, he drew out a letter from under the scattered paper, placed it before Anne with eyes of glowing entreaty fixed on her for a time, and hastily collecting his gloves, was again out of the room, almost before Mrs. Musgrove was aware of his being in it, the work of an instant. End of chapter 23, part 1